I'd like to ask you a question. I'd like to ask you a question this morning, and I'd like to state right out of the gate that this is a rhetorical question, which means you do not have to respond to me verbally. But I'd like you to ask, I'd like you to answer the question I ask in your head. Do you ever feel like life is unfair? Do you ever feel like life is unfair. Maybe you've been sick. Maybe you've been battling cancer for years and the battle never seems to end. Maybe you have a coworker who lies and cheats and gets away with it. And not only do they lie and cheat and get away with it, but he just got promoted. Maybe you want a spouse. You want a spouse badly and you, you still don't have a spouse. Maybe your husband has left you and you're not sure what to do next. Maybe God led you to adopt a child. You felt sure that God was leading you to adopt a child and you went through and you adopted the child. And nothing seems to be turning out right. Maybe in your family, your sister gets all the attention and nobody seems to pay attention to you. Maybe you look around and you look at other people and they seem to have a great friend group. And you feel like you're all alone and you don't really feel like you have any friends. In these circumstances and in many others, we often feel like things aren't right. Like things are not the way they should be. We often feel like life just isn't fair. What I'd like you to do right now is if one of the examples that I gave did not resonate with you, I'd like you to think about something in your life right now, something in the world, or maybe something in someone's life, somebody you love, something in their life that doesn't seem right, that's not fair. I'd like you to think about that thing. What's that thing for you that makes you question whether life is fair? And I'm not so concerned about the issue or the thing or the circumstance. This morning, what I'd like to focus on, what I believe God wants us to focus on, is your response. What's your response? And more specifically, what's your response to God? You see, the thing that you're dealing with, the issue or the circumstance, it may not be fair. It may not be right. It may not be the way you think things should go. But this morning, the issue for us is our response, and specifically, our response to God. See, we learn in Malachi that 
there's only two potential responses. There's only two potential responses to all of life's issues. Because there's really only two types of people. The arrogant and the humble. Would you take your Bibles and open up to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. This morning we're continuing our study in the book of Malachi. And this morning our text is Malachi 3 verses 13 through 18. Now remember the context here. Remember what's happening in Malachi. The people of Israel, God's chosen people, have just returned from exile in Babylon. They were in slavery in Babylon and now they've returned to the promised land, the land that God promised them. But upon returning, they're starting to understand that things aren't how they thought they should be. Life wasn't what they expected being the chosen people of God. Things didn't seem right. Things didn't seem fair. And many of the people were questioning God's greatness. They were skeptical of his love and of his, of his provision for them. And as a result, many of them were not thinking highly of God. So God, through the prophet Malachi, challenges his people in their response to their circumstances. And he draws a clear line and he separates them into two groups, the arrogant and the humble. And just as he challenged them 2,400 years ago with these words, he's going to use these words today to reveal to us whether we're arrogant or we're humble. So God's first words to us this morning, the first words are to the arrogant. We're going to call this group A. A is for arrogant. See how creative I am with that? Group A, the arrogant. This is the group, in case you're not clear, this is the group that you do not want to be a part of. But let's look at this group first. Verse 13. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. This is God's charge against group A. They've spoken arrogantly against God. This means that they've spoken harshly, strongly, violently against God. They've used hard and rude words against God. Now, whether these words were loudly articulated or quietly whispered or just an attitude of the heart, God hears them. He sees. God knows what's happening. You can't hide anything from God. And please notice here, as God eavesdrops, yes, God eavesdrops on everything. As God eavesdrops, the people are not saying harsh words to him. Notice they're saying harsh words against him. And to be clear, if you speak arrogantly, it means that you are arrogant. Look at their response in verse 14. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? Really? Now you would think that they would have learned by now. This is the sixth instance in the book of Malachi of the people of Israel arguing against God. And each time God shuts their argument down. But again, they come back. They don't pick it up. They deny here speaking arrogantly against God. Have you ever noticed? Have you ever noticed that it's typically our first reaction to any challenge to our spirituality to deny? 
We step right away to denial. Like maybe it's a diversionary tactic or maybe we just kind of outright lie about what's going on. It's kind of like the kid putting his hand in the cookie jar and getting caught. And as his hand's in the jar and there's crumbs on his cheek, he's still like, no, no, I'm not taking any cookies. You see, God sees, he hears, he, he knows everything that goes on. But when we're challenged, we often get defensive. Do you, you really think that you don't make any mistakes? Or that God does not hear and see at all? Or maybe we don't even think that we kind of sin at all. We, 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 what it boils down to is it often boils down to we're just full of so much pride and we would rather do our own thing than admit that God has caught us. Now let's look at what God heard them saying because remember, he hears everything. Look what he heard them saying and he caught them. Look at verse 14. You have said it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper. And even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. See, group A, the arrogant, have three specific complaints against God. These are the words of the arrogant. The first complaint is found in verse 14. It is futile to serve God. The people think it's a waste of time and a waste of their energy to serve God. It's a worthless endeavor, vain activity. They did not see any benefit in following the Lord and doing what was right. Now I know, you know, you and I both know that there are people outside of the church that think it's futile to serve God. But this is not directed to people outside of the church who think it's a waste of time to serve God. This is directed to you and it's directed to me. It is asking people inside the church whether we feel like it's futile to serve God. And this first complaint is really an introduction to and a summary of the next two more specific complaints that the arrogant have against God. The second complaint is found in verse 14 as well. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? In other words, what's in it for us? What's the reward for me? The Hebrew word that is translated here, gain, is also translated profit. So they're also saying, what does it profit me to follow God? This word profit comes from the idea of a weaver cutting a piece of cloth from a loom. It's the idea of of getting your cut, of getting your percentage. The person is looking for their benefit. It's looking for their blessing. Do you ever think that way? Be careful here. We're inclined We're inclined to self-pity, self-focus, self-centeredness, and often self-direction as well. We live in a world that feeds the me-first mentality. If there's nothing in it for you, why do it? If the church isn't meeting your needs, get out. If the church doesn't do what you think the church should do, go find another church. If God isn't blessing you, why follow him? You deserve happiness. The needs of other people, hmm, 
Your needs come first. Now you may be thinking, but Tom, last week you said if we give our tithes and offerings that God will bless us, that God will bless us in every way. He will even bless us financially. And remember what I said as I said, yes, he will bless you in every way. He will even bless you financially, but that's not a promise that you will get rich. But our problem is I think when we look at this we often look at God as a genie in a bottle. We look at God as a genie in a bottle that is there to grant our every wish. We think he's always about our happiness. We think he wants us to be happy at every cost. We set our expectations high. And if God doesn't meet our expectations, it means that somehow God is wrong. That's not the way this works. Yes, God promises great blessings to those who give to him. God promises great blessings to those who serve him, but he does not promise to provide those blessings in any definite period of time. And he also doesn't promise to bless with a certain amount of material goods, but he does promise to bless. There's this great exchange between Jesus and the apostle Peter. And Peter, you can see, has this kind of idea running through his mind. He's kind of saying, what's in it for me, Jesus? Look at what Peter says. He says, we have left everything to follow you. You get the implication there, don't you? What's in it for me? So Jesus responds to him, truly I tell you, no one has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields. And at this time, you can almost sense Peter and all the rest of the disciples who are listening getting really excited, clapping their hands, saying amen. We're going to be blessed. We're going to be blessed in this life. And then Jesus kind of drops the bomb. And he says, yeah, you're going to be blessed in this life and you're going to be blessed in the next, but it comes with persecution. It comes with trials, it comes with difficulties, it comes with hardship. And not only does it come with trials, difficulties, and hardship, it comes with trials, difficulties, and hardships just because you're following Jesus. Jesus promises blessing. He promises blessing to all who give to him. What's in it for you to serve the Lord? Blessing. That is what is in it for you to serve the Lord. And you will receive blessing in this life. And more importantly, and more specifically, you will receive blessing for all of eternity. Think about that for a minute. All of eternity, God is going to bless you. But if you follow Jesus, you are going to experience persecution as well. You are going to experience trial. You are going to experience hardship. You are going to experience difficulty. But when you do the calculation, I promise you, the blessing always outweighs the persecution. Third complaint, God is not fair. Verse 15, but now we call the arrogant blessed Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Now this at first may be a bit confusing. Here, 
the Israelites are calling other people the arrogant. They're calling the other people of the other nations that are around them, they're calling those people arrogant. And they're seeing those arrogant people who do not follow God are being blessed. From their perspective, not only is there no reward for following God, but the people who are not following God are prospering. The question for them is, why are these evil people evading trouble and even prospering while those who serve God end up getting the short end of the stick? Does this sound familiar? I often think we do the same thing. You ever look around and see people who are not following Jesus, who are not obeying Jesus, and everything seems to be going well for them? You look at those people and you think to yourself, I'm, I'm trying to do everything right. I'm trying to follow Jesus. And all I'm experiencing is trial and difficulty. And that person, they're not trying at all. In fact, they explicitly say that they don't even believe. Yet they're seeming to prosper. It looks like they're doing much better than you. But here's what's happening. When you feel this way, it means that you have lost the eternal perspective that God has. And you're starting to think that this world that we live in is all that there is. You're thinking like the rest of the world. You're thinking temporally. You're thinking this world is all that there is. And God says, no, this world is not all that there is. There is an eternity before you. And an eternity that if you follow me, you are going to be blessed for all of eternity. There's a man named Asaph who wrote about this in Psalm 73. Asaph was a man who contrasted the prosperity of the wicked with his own trials. And initially he concludes that following God is in vain. And look what is written in verse 3 of Psalm 73. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph, he's not upset with the arrogant. He's not angry at the wicked. He is jealous of them. And it causes him to struggle. It causes him to ask, what is going on, Lord? Why is this happening to me? Why are all these negative things happening in my life? And he struggles because he sees the prosperity of the wicked. He sees the prosperity of the arrogant. And he struggles. And it doesn't change. It says in Psalm 73, and check this out later, it doesn't change until he entered the sanctuary. And Asaph says that when I, when I entered the sanctuary, my whole perspective changed and I came to see their end and I saw my end and their end was destruction and eternal punishment and my end was reward. But the change only happened when Asaph entered the sanctuary and entered into the presence of God and bended the knee and worshipped God. Three complaints of the arrogant. Three complaints. Serving God is futile. 
what's in it for me or there's no reward. And the third complaint is that God is not fair. My friends, we need to evaluate ourselves this morning. Are these the words that you speak? Are these the thoughts that are on your mind? Do you feel like it's futile to serve God? Do you wonder what it will profit you for following the Lord? Do you think God is unfair? These are the words, the demonstration of the arrogant. And my encouragement this morning is if that describes you, please confess and repent. But there's a second group. There's a second group, and we're going to call this group Group B. See, not all of the people were arrogant. Some of the people were humble. There was a faithful remnant, probably not as large of a percentage, but there was this faithful remnant of people who were humble. Listen to what the text says about them, and listen closely for the difference. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Now, before we look at the characteristics of the humble, I would like you to think about this. This group experiences the exact same life circumstances as the other group. They face the same pressure. They have the same fears. They lived in the same difficult circumstances, yet their conclusion was radically different. They had a completely different attitude toward God. So let's look at the characteristics. There are three characteristics of the humble. Do these characteristics describe you? First, verse 16. They're described as those who feared the Lord. These people feared God. To fear God means to hold him in awe, in reverence, and in ultimate respect to hold him in awe, in reverence, in ultimate respect. Malachi does an interesting thing all throughout the prophecy of Malachi. Over 20 times in this book, he refers to God as the Lord Almighty. Now we may have missed it. It's kind of something that you can have a tendency to kind of just read over. But he specifically uses this title, the Lord Almighty, more than 20 times. And it's something that we should not just gloss over. The King James Version interprets this title, the Lord of hosts. This idea, this title, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, is a reference to God being the leader of an angel army. This is the reference to God being the God of angel armies. This is the God who leads his army into battle, his army of angels into battle and into victory. He is the Lord Almighty. And so when we think about this, don't miss the fact that intentionally Malachi refers to God as the Lord Almighty. Of course he should be treated with awe and with respect. 
but I don't think that awe and respect go far enough. This is the Lord Almighty. This is the God of angel armies. Today, I am telling you people, we need a revised emphasis on the fear of God. Yes, we rightly emphasize God's love. God is love. He tells us in his word that he is love. But we are often out of balance when we emphasize God's love to the neglect of the fear of his name. To fear the Lord is to tremble at the thought of offending him in any way. To tremble at the thought of offending him in any way. It means that we should run from evil, that we should turn from sin, that we should confess and repent from our sin, turning from this, recognizing that if we don't, God out of love is going to send discipline to place us back on the right course. Yesterday afternoon, I was having a conversation with my niece, and we were talking about this concept of fearing God, and she's like, Uncle Tom, I'm, I'm not picking up what you're saying. So this is how I explained it. And it was helpful for me. It was helpful for her. I hope it's helpful for you. When I was growing up, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that my dad loved me. My dad told me over and over and over again that he loved me. He not only told me, he demonstrated it. I knew and felt his love. But you know what was also present? A healthy dose of fear. Now, not only is my dad a big guy, but there was a healthy dose of fear present, recognizing that if I ever stepped outside of the boundaries, that there was going to be discipline to bring me back. The discipline was out of love. It did not keep me from fearing the discipline, though. There was a healthy dose of fear. God loves you, but you should fear God because when you step out of line, when you step over the boundary and you enter into that broken, sinful behavior, God, because he loves you, is going to discipline you to bring you back. The fear of God keeps you from stepping outside of the boundary. Does that make sense? In Romans 3, verse 18, look what Paul says. This is behind all of man's arrogance. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Second characteristic of group B, second characteristic of the humble, is they edify each other. Look again at verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other. They talked with each other. Now, it doesn't tell us specifically what they said to each other, but if they feared the Lord, I think we can safely assume that they were likely speaking well of God and they were likely encouraging each other. It's likely that they were sharing with each other. It's likely that they opened up with each other. It's likely that in their conversations, they were building each other up. They were edifying each other. Do you have people in your life that do this for you? Do you have people in your life that when you gather with them, they build you up spiritually? That because they fear the Lord, they speak positively about God to you and they encourage you They encourage you in the things you are involved in. They encourage you to not do the things that you shouldn't be doing. That they are in your life to encourage you, to build you up, to edify you. This is what the humble do. They edify each other. Are you a person 
who edifies and encourages other people? Are you someone who builds up others? You see, Calvary Church, we need to be that type of place. We need to be the place where we encourage each other, where we edify each other, where we build each other up, where we build God up. You see, the arrogant, the arrogant don't do this. The arrogant are always about tearing down. And if you have people who are arrogant in your lives and they're tearing you down and they're tearing God down, my encouragement to you is don't spend so much time with them. But be a person who edifies and encourages others. The third characteristic of the humble is that they honor God's name. See the end of verse 16? It says, those who feared the Lord and honored his name. It could also read esteem his name. To honor or esteem means to think highly or thoughtfully about. To think highly or thoughtfully about. These people not only encouraged each other by speaking positively of the Lord, they also thought highly about him in regard to their current situation and the current events of the life that they were facing. They looked at the current events around them. They looked at their own circumstances and they began to wonder what was God doing? What positive action was God taking? What good is God going to bring about in and through this situation? In the midst of your struggle, are you continuing to honor God's name in your sickness, in your financial difficulty, in your broken relationship, are you choosing to honor God's name? See, the humble recognize that God alone is God. Humility is knowing and putting God first in our lives, into the place that only he deserves. The arrogant may not say it, but they believe themselves to be equal to God or higher than God. And they do not honor his name. They complain, they bicker, they critique, they whine, they curse. Their hearts are hard or hardening. Are you the person who is arrogant or are you humble? Do you fear God's name? Do you esteem God? Do you honor God? That's a description of the humble. Those are their three characteristics. But the interesting thing about this text is God doesn't leave us there with just a description of the arrogant and a description of the humble. God offers promises, incentives, if you will, to the humble. So let's look at the three promises that God gives to the humble as we wrap up. First, first promise, he remembers them. Look at verse, 14, look at verse 16, excuse me. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. 
Not only does the Lord listen to all of our words and see all of our deeds, he records this stuff. He writes it down in a book of remembrance. And this has behind it the concept of writing all the good things down. Writing down your acts of obedience, your good deeds, your sacrifices for others, your standing for the truth, witnessing of Jesus, turning away from evil. He writes down when you are content in difficult situations. He hears, he sees, he knows it all, and he writes it down. And the promise here is he remembers. And he remembers so that he can reward you for your good deeds. Do you think that God has forgotten about you? You wouldn't be the first. The people of Israel felt at numerous times that God had forgotten about them. In Isaiah 49, look what they say. In Isaiah 49, the people of Israel say, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. Look at God's response. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. The Lord Almighty has written your deeds down in a book of remembrance. He has engraved your name on the palm of his hand. Your walls are ever before him. God has not forgotten you. He remembers you. He's written it all down in a book of remembrance. Second, he claims the humble. Look at verse 17. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. The King James Version says, and they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my jewels. Mine is the emphasized word in this text. Mine they are, and mine they will be. This means that you are most precious and beautiful to God. God is committed to the humble. He values you as his treasured possession. It means that he is committed. Look what it says. It says you are his treasured possession. The King James says you are his jewel. You are unique and you are special to God. Now perhaps you maybe have a family heirloom in your family. Maybe it's a jewel. Maybe it's a special piece of art that you treasure, that you value, and you, and you have that jewel or you have that piece of art in a special place. Think about how much you value that family heirloom. It doesn't come close to comparing how much God values you as his treasured possession. God treasures you. He's crazy about you. You mean far more to him than you could ever imagine. Far more than any family heirloom. Look what he says in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior. This is the Lord Almighty, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. God remembers the humble. 
And not only does God remember the humble, he treasures the humble. And then finally, the third promise to the humble is that he will spare you. Second half of verse 17, I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. God promises to spare the humble because he remembers us, because he claims us as his treasured possession, he promises to spare us. We all have seen the accounts of fathers running into a burning home to rescue their son from the fire. We've seen the accounts of mothers swimming out in the lake to pull their daughters from the riptide. This is the exact same idea here, that the God, the Lord Almighty, is going to run into the burning earth and is going to pull the humble out, rescuing them, sparing them from the destruction that is coming. In the exact same way that a mother or a father rescues their son or their daughter. This is how much we mean to God. See, if you are a child of God, if you are humble, it means you fear God. You edify others and you honor God's name. And then you're seen as humble. And God offers you promises. Promises to remember you, to claim you, and to spare you. As we close this morning, I have one question for you. What group does God put you in? Does God put you in among the arrogant? Or does God consider you to be humble? God's making a distinction. And someday there's going to be one last, final, ultimate distinction. Look at what it says in Malachi 3, verse 18. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. What group does God place you in? I started the service by saying there's only two responses because there's only two types of people. There are only two responses to God. Either you are arrogant and you are holding your fist in the air against God or you are humble and you are bowing your knee in submission to him. Choose the latter. That's the group that you want to be part of. The humble. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, as I prayed before the servant, this is not an easy text. But Heavenly Father, it is a clear text. And it is the prayer that I've had for myself for this whole week. And I've had for my brothers and sisters and I pray it again this morning. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who you count among the humble. 
Lord, help each one of us to bend our knee in fear and reverence to you. Lord, help us to be people who edify each other, who build each other up. And Lord, we pray that we would be a people who honor your name regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Lord, we can only be humble through your grace and through your strength. Lord, I pray that you would give us that grace and give us that strength. Lord, we now are going to close and we're going to worship you. Lord, help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. And in the name of Jesus. Amen.